0: You're listening to the Randy Han show on the Sharks audio network. Now here's Randy. John Jeffrey Odgers was born on May 31st of 1969 in the small southeastern Saskatchewan town of Spy Hill. Jeff played over 800 games in the NHL for the Sharks, the Boston Bruins, the Colorado Avalanche and the Atlanta thrashers and compiled a total of 2,364 penalty minutes. He also scored 75 goals and 70 assists, and served as captain of the San Jose Sharks for the latter half of the '94-'95 season, and then the entire 1995-96 campaign. And to this day, remains the Sharks' all-time leader in penalty minutes. And he joins us from his farm in Canada. Jeff, good to hear from you again.
1: It's great to hear from you, Randy. Been a long time.
0: Looking forward has. to catching up. Jeff, uh, really from the time you left home at 17 to play junior hockey for the Brandon Wheat Kings back in 1986 until your uh, NHL career ended in 03, you traveled all over North America, you played in beautiful, warm, sunny places like San Jose and Atlanta, yet you are back home, back on the farm in Spy Hill. What is it about that place that is so attractive to you?
1: You know what, I guess maybe I'm just a sucker for punishment, but uh, the, uh, the farm has always been a big, big thing for me. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here in the farm. Uh, my boys are the fifth generation on this farm. It's a century farm. It's been the odgers name for 100 years. Um, you know, and it's just something about this lifestyle that uh, I've always enjoyed. I've always liked. And like you said, I got to live in some beautiful places. And, you know, this morning it was about minus 26 Celsius and the wind's blowing, the lake's frozen over outside the house. And there's days when you think, what the heck am I doing here? When I could have probably, you know, been in San Jose or Atlanta, but uh, you know what? Uh, It's where I want to be and uh, it's where I want to stay, man. I just, I love the farm. I love the lifestyle. I just love it.
0: What kind of farming do you do?
1: You know, we got a cow-calf operation. So we're running about 130 cows that we calve out every spring. Uh, We we grow some grain for harvest. Uh, We grow a lot of forage crops as, uh, you know, with the winters like they are, we have to feed these cows for about uh, six months of the year. So a lot of our acres are, you know, in the growing forage and feed and pasture for the cattle. So we're farming about 2000 acres total. So it's really an old school mixed farm. We got some cows, we got some chickens, we got some pigs, we got some laying hens. So it's uh, kind of like farms used to be. It's kind of how I always uh, envisioned it.
0: Jeff, there's so much to talk about, but I want to start at the beginning about how you grew up. Tell me about your childhood, about your parents and your family. What was it like for you growing up? You know, what we, we grew up
1: on the farm. Uh, so as a kid, you always had, you know, lots of responsibilities. And, uh, you know, it was a small town. So, you know, come wintertime, uh, the only thing to do was play hockey. So I always had a huge passion for the game of hockey. I had a couple uncles that played for the local senior hockey team that I kind of uh, idolized. So, you know, not playing hockey, you know, wasn't an option for me. Uh, So he grew up at the rink. We were only a couple miles out of town. So he always uh, got to town, got to skate. And plus dad would make a a rink in the backyard for us here at the farm. So in the winter, it was pretty much consumed with hockey. And then, you know, in the summer, uh, there was lots of uh, farming stuff to do. As a kid at a young age, you know, you could always help out pitch in. There's always stuff to do. So and I was pretty lucky. We were we were always going. We were always busy. Uh, you didn't live the most extravagant lifestyle, but it was uh, it was a fun lifestyle. And it was something that, like I said, I it never left me. And um, I kind of wanted to, you know, give my kids and stuff a bit of a, a piece of that as well when I was done and just to see if they'd like it as well.
0: Compared to you, I grew up in the big city in Edmonton, but I, I would expect that your introduction to skating, at the very least, was probably similar to mine. By the time you could walk, someone decided to put skates on you and shove you out there, right? Well, for sure. Yeah, You know, everybody always had a hand-me-down
1: pair of skates, whether it was uh, an older brother or an uncle or, you know, whatever, they give you a pair of skates, and uh, that's what you want to do, uh, you know, get to the rink and go public skating with you, your friends or even like I said, you always, uh, the dads around here always made a rink at home for you to skate on when you came home from school. So it was just just what everybody did. Tell
0: me about your parents.
1: You know what? Um, mom and dad, they, my dad grew up in this, on the family farm. And, uh, you know, him and mom uh, met young. So I was always lucky to have really young and active parents. Uh, very supportive, you know, of whatever you wanted to do. Um, you know, whether it was me or my brother, my sisters, we were – Taking all the activities we wanted, you know, just your your small town hardworking parents, you know, gave you good values, a uh, good role model uh, to look up to and try and uh, and emulate. So it was I was pretty lucky that way to have the you know the parents I had and the family and uh, growing up in Spy Hill, I had both sets of grandparents really close so. Family was always around, whether it was aunts or uncles or or cousins. And, you know, Sunday dinners, there could be anywhere from six to 60 people around when you're sitting around.
0: What was your parents' approach to you playing hockey? Was it something that was expected? Were you pushed into it? Or did they let you make up your own mind about it? You know what?
1: They just let me make up my own mind. Um, You know what? They supported me. And uh, as much as I wanted to play, they'd take you. I know back when I was younger, there was no limits, really any teams you could play on. I think the one year when I was like 12 or 13, I played on six different teams during the year. So we were on the road nonstop, but it was never, never a push. You know, like my brother was a pretty talented hockey player as well. And I remember uh, he came home from, I think it was a game when he was about 13 or 14 and said, you know, I don't know if I really want to play. And then dad just said, well, then why are you playing? And he uh, threw his bag down the stairs and that's where it stayed. So it was uh it was never
0: something that was expected or pushed. It was had to be something you wanted to do. You didn't play junior until you were 17, and you just alluded to those teen years. And, and maybe even before that, what are your hockey memories as a boy? Because I know at some point before you went to the WHL, you enjoyed some, some success, won a championship with a group. Uh, what were your boyhood memories of the game?
1: You know, it, it was always just having fun with your buddies. Like, it was never something you played, uh, you know, you watched NHL games, but it was so far away, it wasn't even a reality. You just did it because you enjoyed playing with it. Uh, you know, won a Wee championship with a guy named uh, Kevin Killer Kaminsky, who, uh, you know, spent some time in the NHL. You know, in this area, we had lots of guys that actually made it from the small town, either farms or mining community. You know, we had Kelly Buckberger that lived about 20 miles down the road. Theron Fleury was about 30 minutes. Uh, Kevin Kaminsky, Pat Balloon right across the border of Iowa. line wasn't too far. So, you know, for a community within like a 60-mile radius, we had a ton of guys that, uh, you know, kind of grew up the same way, not really expecting to, to make it
0: or go anywhere, but just loved the game and kept playing and had an opportunity to come your way. You would end up being known throughout your pro career as a pretty tough customer. When did it occur to you when you were younger that you were tougher maybe than the average kid you were playing against or with? Well,
1: it, maybe it wasn't tougher. Maybe it just wasn't as smart. Um, you know, I think when it hit me was uh, my first year of junior, when I was 17. I had played some triple A midget when I was 16. Still had some offensive success with scoring lots of goals. And uh, as you know, Randy was never the best skater. You know, it's probably one of the things that uh, you know I had to work on the most. But playing junior, you know, I went to camp. In Brandon and uh, every kid from every small town that scored goals and did what I did was there. And I kind of realized that I had to do something to kind of separate myself, to get a spot on the team, Uh, playing physical, playing hard, you know, dropping the gloves, stand up for teammates was a way that, you know, I thought I could stick around and I'll be honest, I didn't mind doing it. I kind of enjoyed it at that age. So it was a way that I could keep playing and uh, you know, just kind of, you find a way. I think that's what you do when you hit a roadblock, either kind of stop and say, this isn't for me, or you look at your other options, what else can I do to stay here? And, you know, dropping the gloves and playing like I did was definitely a way I could.
0: I want to back up just a bit and talk about leaving home for Brandon. You were 17, and, and, and that's normal for a hockey player to leave home and pursue the game at that age at a higher level. Brandon, for those not aware, is in Manitoba, yet your farm was near the border in Saskatchewan. You, you could have ended up in Regina, too, I guess, which is also pretty close to home. How did you end up with the Brandon Wheat Kings?
1: Well, it was kind of funny. Um, you know, I played through triple – when I was playing triple-A midget, I actually played in Saskatoon. Um, and back then we never had a, a draft or anything, you know, players, were just scouted and put on a protected list. And we had a, uh, a guy on our team in Saskatoon named Kevin Chevalier, who you now know as the general manager of the Winnipeg Jets. He was uh, Brandon Weeking property and, uh, Mickey Bootsman was a scout from Brandon that was, uh, you know, scout scouting Chevy and just, uh, had lots of our games. And, uh, he was the one who noticed me and decided, uh, you know, I might be worth taking a chance on. So the Wheat Kings actually put me on the protected list as well. Uh, And I really owe it all to Chevy because they were there to watch him play to see how he was developing and uh, got noticed along the way and got protected by Brandon. So that's where I got my start uh, in Brandon.
0: Looking back, you played against some amazing players in junior. And you mentioned some of them, Pat Talun, who would end up uh, becoming the Sharks' first ever draft pick. And ironically, your teammate in San Jose, Uh, you played against some greats. Joe Sakic, Mike Modano, you mentioned Theo Fleury. It must have been a fantastic time in your life.
1: It really was. You know, you know what I mean? Like playing junior hockey, uh, I still belong to a group chat. And there's about 11 of us in it that all played on that junior hockey team at Brandon. We've all kept to be close friends. And, you know, the thing about it then when you, when you moved to play Brandon, in Brandon, you didn't know anybody else. All of you had was your teammates. And we were all in the same boat. So we did everything together. You know, we'd meet for breakfast before practice and hang out. We'd, we'd practice and then we'd hang out after, go to watch a movie or whatever. So that was your support group. That was your friends. And, uh, you have a bond there with those guys that, uh, you know, never leaves you. Like I said, I still keep in touch with lots of those guys. So for me and Brandon was nice. It was only two hours from the farm. So, you know, mom and dad were able to make it in a bit so you could keep in close contact with mom and dad. And you know, if we had a day off or whatever, uh, you know, you could zip home if you had enough gas money to, to make it home. You go home and touch base. So it was a great experience. And you know what? We, we were a terrible team. I was there four years. We made the playoffs once and
0: won one game. But uh, I can still say it was some of the best four years of my life. Do you think that's where the seeds are planted, and maybe in your case specifically uh, for things like character? You were always known for being a character player, and and a leadership. It led you to become a captain in the NHL. Do you think that bonding with that group and Brandon is where it really took hold? I think it was a big part of it because you know
1: we had some some tough nights. Uh, You know the Brandon was close to the farm, uh, but it wasn't close to much else. Our uh, closest road game was in Regina which was about three and a half uh, to four hours and my first year I went to Brandon they didn't even know if they were going to have a team the year before they thought they might be moving to Billings so true story they never even sent anybody to the scheduling meeting so they just threw us wherever our schedule was atrocious we would play six games at eight nights working our way out you know 15 16 hours in Brandon and then working our way back and uh, we didn't have the best of teams so you either just kind of quit and pouted and went home or you kind of bonded with your teammates. You stuck together and fought together, did everything. So it it was definitely a big part of, uh, you know, showing what it takes to be be on a team and, you know, help another guy when he gets down or there's days where things weren't going well for you and somebody picked you up. So it definitely went a long way to, you know, teaching you how to be a, a good teammate and uh, show you that not everything's going to go
0: good all the time. It seemed like you had a, a good four years in Brandon you scored uh, as many as 37 goals that final season there of course with over 200 penalty minutes but uh, Jeff you weren't drafted by the NHL were you shocked at that time did it hurt you it it did um you know I
1: I remember after my 19 year old year it was the uh, third time I'd been through the draft and there was 12 rounds back and I still never got drafted uh, I remember, I think the Washington Capitals told me if I was going to there in the sixth round that they would take me, um, and they never did. So I know after my 19 year old year, I just I didn't know, like I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to play, or if it was even worth it. Um, and then I got a pretty good break. You know, I had a guy named Chuck Grillo um, from the Minnesota North Stars at the time gave me a call, uh, invited me to come to a, a summer development camp in Brainerd, Minnesota. And yeah, that's kind of where, you know, you have these people in your life that uh, show up at the right time and give you an opportunity. Mickey Bootsman was a big one in Brandon and uh, Chuck Grillo was a guy that, uh, you know, had heard about me, hadn't met me yet, but, uh, you know, Chuck ended up becoming one of my biggest supporters and, uh, you know, one of my, uh, probably one of the big reasons why I was able to make it.
0: And I was going to ask you a little bit more about Chuck and for our listeners, Chuck, ran a, a renowned hockey camp in Minnesota and Chuck would later become a, a key hockey to, hockey executive in the early years of the Sharks. It, it really changed your career path, your life path, uh, that encounter with Chuck, which led you to go to Kansas city, right?
1: It did. Yeah. Um, you know, I ended up going to Minnesota North stars camp, um, and you know, had a decent camp, made an impression. And then Minnesota, Uh, Split. It was kind of a funny deal there. And uh, they split half the guys, state of Minnesota, half the guys went to San Jose. And Chuck went to San Jose. And I was a free agent that year, played my overage year in Brandon. And uh, the San Jose Sharks actually offered me a contract a year before they even had a team. I ended up having to sign a personal services contract for one year, which eventually would turn into a two-way NHL contract. And I remember having the same contract offer from the Vancouver Canucks. So I had to decide whether I we'll would go to Vancouver or the Sharks. And I thought, you know, I was a guy that was kind of on the bubble anyways, and thought I might have a better chance of, uh, you know, cracking an expansion team lineup and uh, established team like Vancouver. And, you know, I can look back and say, I probably made the right decision.
0: So you end up spending a season and then a few more games in the IHL, the International Hockey League back at that time in Kansas City. Then you end up on the first-year expansion. Sharks, you are in the National Hockey League now, and that must have been the thrill of a lifetime. Tell us how that was.
1: Well, you know, I played, I think, 12 games in Kansas City. Uh, we'd come off a road trip, and I got a call that I was getting called up to the, to the Sharks. It was hard to believe. I couldn't believe it. Uh, first game was in New York against the Islanders, and the old Nassau Coliseum, And I remember, you know, flying New York. We had a practice the day before the game and game day. Oh, my man, was I nervous. Like something you've dreamed about your whole life. You should not be this nervous. I think I was making guys nervous that have been in the league 10 years uh, already. And, uh, you know, George Kingston, uh, our first coach, uh, one of the most respected men I've ever known as a coach or just a human being. And he knew how I played. He's another Saskatchewan guy. And he called me in the office for the game. And he said, Jeff, we know your style of game. Uh, You're not here just to fight. You know, we want you to play a little bit, you know, uh, do all the things you do. (laughs) I was just remember thinking, yeah, 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 whatever. (laughs) Uh, I think it was the second shift. I ran into Mick Makota for the Islanders. We dropped the gloves and got at it and uh, actually helped me calm down. I actually felt better after the fight. And I remember sitting in the dressing room and thinking, holy man, you know, I just played a game in the National Hockey League. You know, how cool would it be to play two games? You know, you got two games. And then how cool would it be here for one paycheck? And then what if I got a hockey card? You know, and it just kind of that whole year was just one thing
0: after another. Well, regular season and playoffs, you ended up playing almost 900 games in the NHL. So that was just only the beginning. So Mick Vokota was your first NHL fight. You scored seven goals that first year. Tell us about your first NHL goal and who you scored it against.
1: Well, we were uh, playing against the Islanders again at home. Um, I was playing on a line with Dean Evison and Paul Fenton. And we had kind of a, you know, your third or fourth line energy guy in and Kingston used to like the, the start at the start of the game. So we started the game, and uh puck got shot in. Steve Weeks was playing net for the Islanders. Kind of a rebound. I hammered it in. And at the time, it was the uh, fastest goal in, uh, in Sharks history. So that was my first goal. And I just remember the relief I felt. And once again, you're thinking, holy man, I've actually scored a goal in this league. <laughs> this is pretty cool.
0: Talk a little bit about the Cow Palace, about Daily City and that whole first year experience and all the newness of it. Do you look back on that year with fondness? Were they good memories?
1: They were. They, they were awesome memories. And I think I look at all the stuff that, you know, he went through with the Cow Palace and, you know, the two or three flights of stairs to get up to the dressing room and you know, the way it that uh, was built and I remember it raining and, you know, during the raining season and some of the fans were getting rained on inside the building because it was, the roof was leaking. But, and I, you know, I thought back when I got older about having to go through that, especially when I went to Atlanta about it's a little bit different going through that as a veteran, you know, as a younger guy, everything's brand new and those tough nights, you know, when you're losing 10 to nothing to the Pittsburgh Penguins after two periods, <laughs> You know, as a young guy, you're still, okay, man, let's go. I'm in the NHL, and, you know, you can see it really take a toll on some of the veterans. But one thing I will say about that Sharks team, they did an unbelievable job of picking veteran guys to come play. You know, they didn't have the luxury like the Vegas Golden Knights or, you know, to put together that type of team, but they put together character people, you know, like Doug Wilson and Dean Evison, Kelly Kissio, Perry Barazan, Wayne Presley, Brian Mullen, you know, all, all the names you go on and on. Just guys for me, they were unbelievable people, unbelievable character, and went a long way to show me what it took to be a player and a big reason why I was able to, you know, play for as long as I did.
0: Now, the NHL in the early 90s was a much different NHL than it is now. So you weren't the only tough guy on the Sharks that year. There was this other fellow named Link Gates. What was your first impression (laughs) of Link?
1: Well, I knew Link uh, from Brainerd. You know, um, they had him in there to do some conditioning. And Link was a guy that was always on the edge. You you just never knew what he was going to do, you know, good or bad. Uh, He always, everybody was kind of uneasy around him because he never knew what he was going to do. But the potential and talent that man had was And just charisma. He just drew people to him. He had that way about him. I think he had like 348 penalty minutes and 48 games. And he had the ability, you know, we do one-on-one drills in practice. is a drill you do where the defenseman stand on the hash marks, forwards are on the the goal line, and it's a one-on-one straight back. The defenseman got to get up and get going backwards as fast as they can. There wasn't a guy on our team that could beat him. You know, he was that skilled of a player. He had a rocket for a shot. When he was on his game, you know, he could run your power play and tough. You know, at that time, Marty McSorley was kind of in his prime. And he was actually, you know, made the all-star team. And to me, you know, don't get me wrong. Like Marty worked and he was unbelievable leader and character guy. But Link had that ability to be as good or better than Marty McSorley and play as long as he did. It just, unfortunately for Link, there are just so many things off the ice mostly they kind of held them
0: back. Did did anything ever boil over in practice where the two of you actually dropped the mitts you and Link? No we, ne- we never did you know what I mean uh, we
1: never did uh, we were you know got along pretty well we were pretty good friends uh, they actually he would room with Doug Wilson on the road to kind of help look after him and I remember one road trip they put me with Link to kind of help look after him <laughs> on the road so didn't work out so well for me, actually. I don't think I did a very good job of looking after him, but it was just, you know, and the stories. I remember uh, we were flew into Vancouver and uh, the plane gets surrounded by police cars. And we're like, what is going on here? They stop us around the runway and they come and they they drag Link right off the plane. Um, you know, that was a first for a lot of guys in the National Hockey League. And, you know, he just, had so much ability and talent. And like I said, tough and charisma and drew people to him. But there was issues like that that just kind of fortunately held him
0: back. For the record, I think I was on that trip and a Mountie <laughs> in a full uniform got on the microphone in the plane and just said, link gates to the front. I, I think he had been accused of spinning donuts in someone's lawn uh, in Vancouver the past summer. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, they got him for that. Um, let's talk about year two. Year two was tough with the Sharks. Jeff, the, the team won 11, 71, and two. And, and those two ties, you guys were tremendous, I, I want to point out. But uh, Link was gone by then, and, and you started to assume a bigger role as a player. How was that year for you to go through?
1: Well, for me, you know, it was tough because you're losing. And I had to be smart enough to realize that, you know what, I had a, a coach in George Kingston that believed in me, was giving me an opportunity to play and probably on any other franchise in the league, uh, I wouldn't have got that opportunity. So,
0: you know, being on
1: that team, it was tough for sure because your outcomes of the games weren't what you wanted. But I also realized that it was I was given an opportunity to, you know, get some quality minutes, even got thrown in the power play for a bit. So it was a real opportunity for me to kind of establish myself in year two as a guy that could play, hopefully you know be a bit of a leader and learn from some of the veterans we had around there that helped kind of piece it together you know when you had those tough nights so for me it was it was tough going through but it was also a great opportunity
0: that takes us to the 93-94 season the third year of the sharks and really a magical year Uh, the team finally moving into the brand new san jose arena and and you get to move to the city of san jose yourself that had to be exciting after the excitement of first making the nhl and getting through two seasons now you're in a brand new rink with brand new fans right
1: yeah no and it was just to see the excitement like we had the unbelievable following um at the cow palace but uh you know go to the san jose arena and kind of get settled in in a new city and have excitement of having you know larry Onoff and Makarov and you know that group coming in so we had some you know legitimate skill come in and made our, our team better and you know just being able to experience what we did like skating through that shark in that in the new arena was just the sound of the fans and the roar you now it was unbelievable some of those things that you'll never forget just to have the excitement that the city had you know to finally have us in San Jose
0: um, you know it just energized you every night and then you had the whole thing with the logo going on which not only was a, a big deal in the NHL but it, it almost became an international sensation even though you guys had had a, a terrible second year everybody it seemed around the world knew who this new team were you,
1: you know the Sharks were so far ahead of everybody in in marketing um, you know, I think they were one of the first teams that, you know, did the marketing. We actually, whether it was, I don't know, computers were, if they were online or they had an, you know, you could order sharks, mer- merchandise from everywhere. And I remember going to Buffalo and, you know, the Buffalo Sabres have been there for a lot of years and looking around a warmup. And there was probably as many people wearing shark jerseys as there were Buffalo Sabres jerseys. And it was just from the marketing and the color scheme and the whole shark, uh, it was just something that caught on. Went, and whoever, you know, was a mastermind of the brains behind that was did an unbelievable job because it it really changed, I think, a lot of the ways that a lot of pro sports teams even marketed their teams and their jerseys.
0: You mentioned the start of that year, adding Igor Larionov and uh, Sergei Makarov from Russia, two of the greatest players in the history of, of that country. And you also had Jeff Norton added on and Johan Garpinlov. And I, I separately want to ask you about Arthur's Urbe as well. But even though you guys started that season 08 and 1, did you sense something had changed? Something was brewing with this group?
1: We had a good group. We did. And, you know, a lot of the guys that were there, um, you know, were there for a reason. Um, they were either kind of cast off from other teams and they're, this is their last chance to, you know, stick around it and make a goal of it. And I, I think the real turning point really was, you know, Larry Onup and Makarov, Garpenloff, they wanted to play a certain way. And I think they were met with a little bit of resistance. You know, uh, I think, you know, where I'm going with this and Makarov and Larry Onup weren't going to change. So something had to change philosophy wise. And it kind of got to the point where it was, we had four lines, but we had one group of five that did whatever they wanted. And the rest of us did exactly what our coach, Kevin Constantine wanted. And it just, for whatever reason, it seemed to work. Like the rest of us, we got to the red line, that puck better be in, or you're not going back on the ice or Larry Onoff, Mackenroff, Garfinloff, you know, Norton, Oselinch. They'd play, keep away in the neutral zone until they see an opening and then, you know, attack. It's kind of like the old Russian style. It was something that not many teams in in the National Hockey League would allow. And, you know, I'll give credit for our organization to standing up and say, you know what, if we let these guys use their talents, play like they want, uh, you know, we have the potential to make a difference.
0: You mentioned Kevin Constantine, a very intense individual. And I sense, even though you were a younger man at that time, old school in some ways, like you are as well. How did you and Constantine get along?
1: We got along good. You know, like one thing with with Constantine, he was, you were never more prepared for a game than under, under Kevin. Like he never left one single detail out, whether it be meetings, whether it be video, whether it be individual meetings, Everything was covered with Kevin. And, you know, even the little things on certain players and other teams, the way you'd approach him, your stick position, which way you'd force him out behind the net. If a defenseman stopped behind the net, he knew which way they'd like to take off and skate. So there wasn't one detail that was left unturned. And he was, I never felt uh, any more prepared to play a game than I did for under Constantine. And, And honestly, he was one of the main reasons why we had that success and were able to Turn that team from you know the last place team in the league to the biggest turnaround in NHL history and make the playoffs.
0: Goaltenders are unique in the sport for sure. And I often compare them to a quarterback in football. If your team has a good quarterback, you've got a chance. If you've got an average one, you have no chance. Arturz Urbe, had a, a terrific year that 93-94 season. He was better than a good goaltender at times. He was a great goaltender and really became even more so early on that season, a bigger star than Larianoff and Makarov ever were in the city, didn't he? He
1: he really did. And uh Archie or Arthur's man, he was just there was nobody that worked as hard as him and he has had that way about him uh he trained hard. He was one of the first few goalies that was was really in shape. He hit the weights. He conditioned. He ran marathons. And uh, one of the things that drove me crazy about him is he fixed all his own equipment. And he sometimes he wouldn't realize his equipment wasn't uh, the way it was till like just before warmup. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Archer is we're, that first year we you know we we beat out Detroit. We're in Toronto. Uh, we're playing game seven. Five minutes before warm up, Arthur is only half dressed and he's got a, a needle and thread and he's sewing up one of his pads that the seam that came loose because his equipment was fairly old he'd like to change. So I was there, you know, four hours before the game, I was ready to go and he's here's our number
0: one goaltender and he's still
1: sewing his pads there five minutes before warm up.
0: Like I said, they're unique. Uh, I want to touch on the playoff series because, uh, well, two of them, but especially the first one that year. You guys made a great run at the end of the season, snuck into the playoffs as the eighth seed. And now you're going against not only the number one seed in the conference, the Detroit Red Wings, but in the minds of a lot of people, they were the team to beat to win the Stanley Cup that year. Do you remember what your feeling was before that series started? What your expectations were? Well, I remember going in,
1: our team had a lot of confidence. You know, we, we were basically playing playoff hockey the last month and a half to make it. You know, we come together and we, we won some big games. We beat some teams that, uh, you know, not a lot of people expected us to beat. And then I think you could have all the preparation, everything going into the game, but it's still the Detroit Red Wings. So there's always that little bit of doubt. And when we went in there with the game plan, and believe me, we had a game plan. Everybody knew their roles and responsibilities. And I think when we won game one, it, it, it just kind of clicked. It said, you know what? We legitimately have a chance.
0: But of course, in a seven game series, there are lots of twists and turns. And back then the NHL played a 2-3-2 two, two format. So you played those first two games in Detroit, got the split, then won a couple of games at home out of the three. And now you go back to Detroit with a chance to close out the series, and, and you have two chances to win one game. On the other hand, it's the Red Wings, and it's Sergei Fedorov, and it's Steve Iserman, and it's all the rest that goes along with with that team. And you absolutely get torched in game six. And now the whole hockey world, instead of it being a Cinderella story of the Sharks are going to upset the Red Wings, are of the mind that, okay, now it's back to form. The Red Wings stepped on the Sharks in game six, and now they're going to cruise to game seven. What was your mindset between game six and seven?
1: Well, you know what? We always had a resilient team. And, you know, no matter if we lost by one goal or or five goals, I think the best thing was we could park it. You put it behind it. You know, it's a a new day. And that's the approach we went into it. And, you know, the longer it stayed close and the longer we kept hanging around, the more confidence we got and the more we felt like, you know, we legitimately had a chance
0: to win it. I was there that night of game seven when Jamie Baker scored that goal in the third period. And, and I think there was 12 or 13 minutes left in the period. Those must've been the longest 12 or 13 minutes of all of your lives, but what a, what a feeling uh, to win that series. It must've been and to win that game seven after bake scored that goal and, and really shocked the hockey world.
1: You remember that rink Randy when when Bake scored that goal, it just went dead silent. Like it was, they couldn't believe this was actually happening. And then they kind of rallied a and said, okay, they've they're still got time to make it. And then when we ended up winning that game, not only the players, the fans, there was such disbelief in that arena that we actually pulled that off. I, I just remember that feeling of nobody in that rink, you know, besides us, thought we were coming out there with a W. And uh, it, it was awesome. It was, it was one of my all-time favorite, Uh, hockey memories of all time to beat those guys in game seven
0: and mine too and I'll still maintain that uh, until somebody wins the Stanley Cup in San Jose that's San Jose that goal by Bakes is the biggest one in San Jose Sharks history without a doubt Uh, Jeff I I need to talk about fighting because it's uh, something you did a lot of according to my research you fought 242 times in the National Hockey League, and you spent 39 combined hours in the penalty box (laughs) in your career. Uh, You you fought some really tough customers. You talked about Marty McSorley, and, of course, that was before he was a shark with uh, the Edmonton Oilers and and later with the Los Angeles Kings. Uh, Ty Domi was about as tough as they come. Uh, You never fought anybody more times than the late Bob Probert. You fought him six times. And I think you, you tangled with Domi the same number of times. Was Probert the toughest guy you ever fought? He was, he would be
1: right there. Yeah, no, he definitely was just because when you fought him, he didn't seem to get tired. Like, and he was had such a long lanky arms and for a guy like me, you know you had to get inside on them because if you didn't and if you got you strung out and you got your swinging around, you know you knew you were in trouble. Uh, you really knew you were in trouble. Um, there was guys that probably maybe punched a bit harder but as far as all-time toughness or the guy that you wanted to emulate or if you were going to prove yourself in the National Hockey League that uh, you were a gentleman guy that could fight, Bob Probert was the guy you measured yourself against.
0: You weren't known at that time as a heavyweight. I mean, you were a good-sized player, six feet, 200 pounds. But compared to some of those other guys I just mentioned, you gave up pounds and inches to all those guys. But I can never recall you backing down from a challenge. You might have been more of a middleweight in that era, but you never backed down from a heavyweight. What was it about you that you could never turn a cheek when challenged like that?
1: You know, I, I think the biggest thing is I was always scared. I, 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 If I didn't do it, I wouldn't have a job. You know, I, I knew it was part of my job. And I was always just, I never not wanted to do it because I I wanted to play. I wanted to keep playing. And I knew it was a big reason what kept me in the league. So, and I remember even as I got older, they, you'd have maybe some assistant coaches or teammates and say, you know what, you don't have to do it as much anymore. And I was like, no, I do, because somebody else would take my job. So for me, it was something I felt like I had to do to keep my job and keep playing the National Hockey League. So I I never wanted to leave it out there where anybody would question, you know, my willingness to, to drop the gloves or stand up for a teammate uh, or engage. I just wanted to make sure that was never a thought in anybody's mind. So that would not be the reason why... You know, maybe they'd make a decision to bring in somebody else. They'd say, "Odd, oh, you out." Oh, we're not sure if he wants to do it anymore. No, that's that's not what I wanted them to think of.
0: Captains on hockey teams are usually players that uh, are stars. They are usually on the ice more than the rest of the group. If they're forwards, they're they're top six forwards. You were more of a second six forward, uh, yet you became the captain of the San Jose Sharks that very next year after you guys knocked off Detroit uh, partway through that 94, 95 season. Talk about the moment you pulled the Sharks sweater on for the first time with a C on your chest.
1: That was pretty cool. Like it, it, was, it was really cool. And I think the thing that uh, meant the most to me about it is uh, it was voted on by the guys on the team. You know, it wasn't a decision that was made by, you know, upper management or, you know, it was the guys that were in the room uh, that you're playing with every day that made the decision. And probably to me, that that was the thing I was the most proud of. You know, damn right, I was proud to be a captain National Hockey League, but to have it voted on and given to by my teammates was probably one of the most special things ever in my hockey career.
0: You went on to Boston, uh, played briefly there. On to Colorado, you had a good three-year run there. And uh, another three years with the Atlanta Thrashers. That must have been a, a unique experience as well, going to another uh, expansion city as well. But you had experience with that here in San Jose. You made so many friends along the way, but I know one of your Closer hockey friends, at least in the past, and I I assume that you still stay in touch, is Sean Donovan, who was a former San Jose Shark. And you ended up playing together on a couple of teams, right?
1: We did. We ended up playing together on uh, three different teams. And, uh, you know, Donald came in there, I believe he was an 18-year-old. And that time I'd been in the league a little while. And we just kind of hit it off. He was, Donald was such a great kid. You know what I mean? He just loved to play wanted to play loved the life uh had great energy you know so we kind of hit it off right away kind of more of an older guy younger guy type thing and then we got to play together uh on two more teams you know in Colorado and then by the time we played together in Atlanta you know he's growing up he's a he's a man right and uh and we just kind of kept that friendship we both uh we still talk today actually you know he's uh, got a little farm there in Ontario so he's uh doing a lot of the same things I am with the cattle and stuff, and uh, always enjoyed him. always had a energy and a zest for life. And he was, as an older guy even, he was one of the guys you just loved to see because you knew they loved the game and, and play. And, man, he was – he could skate. Like, even on that Colorado team I was on, we'd do, uh, you know, the mountain or whatever at the end of practice, and he'd be a zone ahead of everybody on that team. And, you know, he he even really found himself when he went to Calgary, the year they made that run to the cup, uh, you know, he got off to a great start. I think he scored 20 goals that year. And I believe he got hurt in game six of the finals. And I felt that was a real big blow to Calgary because the way he was playing, got in on the forecheck, killed penalties, created
0: a lot of havoc. So uh, not only a good friend, but uh, had a heck of a career. So did you, Jeff Rodgers, and five great years with the San Jose Sharks. I think fans from back in that era who followed the team closely will uh, remember you with great fondness for your courage, your uh, leadership with that team, and all the great memories you brought us, especially in that uh, magical 93-94 season when you guys made a run all the way to Game 7 against the second round. I know there are chores to be done on the uh, farm. We thank you so much for your time and wish you all the best, Jeff. Great talking to you. Man, it was great
1: reminiscing. Brought back a whole bunch of more memories I haven't thought of for a while. So that was great, Randy. Thank you.
0: Episodes of this podcast can be listened to anytime on the Sharks and SAP Center app and are available for download under the Sharks Hockey Digest podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google.